We start with Vancouver moving ahead with another Olympic Games bid for 2030. This, of course, would be a unique bid, Indigenous-led. Have a listen to this. Mary Conabear, she is from the Canadian Olympic Committee on this Indigenous-led Olympic bid. Have a listen. I think Canada and BC have an undeniable, um, strong, competitive case, a competitive bid. It's good for the people of Canada, for the people of BC, and it's good for the Olympic and Paralympic movements. Um, Indigenous-led would be a model around the world for a major sport event like this. Okay, was it so nice we should do it twice? Think back to the 2010 Olympic Games. I think even people who were skeptical about those games back in 2010 uh, ended up saying, you know what, it was a pretty good time for the city. Let's check in with Carl- Colleen Hardwick now, Vancouver City Councillor. She's running for mayor this fall. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Okay, you're the only councillor here who feels that this should be put to a, like a plebiscite or a referendum here in Vancouver, right? Can you tell me why? Well, um, as you may recall, in 2003, Vancouver held a plebiscite uh, to determine whether or not we wanted to proceed with the bid in 2010. And it was successful. Right. Um, you know, 65% of those that voted voted in favor of uh, conducting the Olympics in 2010. Yeah. And are, are you in favor of this particular bid, the 2030 Games bid? Do you think it's a good idea? Well, I'm in favor of the people having a voice in it because right yeah. now they don't. That's yeah. the, the largest consideration, whether you're pro or con. The fact that the, the people of the city have been left out of this decision, I find objectionable. Yeah, and if you go back to that earlier plebiscite in 2000, was it 2003, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, if you go, I remember that. And I remember the people who were big supporters of the Olympic Games bid were really worried about it. And some people were opposed to it. It's like, wait a sec, let's not put this to a plebiscite here. What if people say, no, we, we don't like this idea. And then guess what? It passed easily. So do you think maybe for people who are bullish and, you know, they're enthusiastic about going for another Olympic Games and might be worried about a plebiscite, do you think maybe their their worries are misplaced, perhaps? Well, yeah. What are they afraid of? Yeah, right. <laughs> that would right. be the obvious question to me. If, if, if you have confidence that this is the right thing to do, you should be willing to take it to the public and, and have them... Uh, you know, verify that through a plebiscite. And in this case, what I had proposed was we have an election coming up on October 15th, not right. 90 days or, or so in, in the future. We could have easily added this to the ballot as a question, uh, saved ourselves the money that would go into having a standalone plebiscite. Uh, and when I put this forward to staff for comment, uh, you know, the, the only criticisms they, they had was what size of font should we use on the ballot? So I, I just I'm incredulous over why we think the people of Vancouver should not have a, fo- a voice in, in uh, whether or not to proceed with the Olympics. I'm kind of surprised you're sort of flying solo on this one that, and that some other members of council are not joining you and getting behind this idea. I mean, you're the only, I, th- I believe you're the only councillor voted in favour of this plebiscite, correct? Yeah, I'm incredulous as well. Um, prior to, uh, you may recall that I tried to bring this forward earlier in the spring as a motion, and the mayor uh, tweeted out that my motion violated the MOU with First Nations. Right. Uh, and everybody ran for the hills, frankly. I did have a seconder lined up who pulled out, and uh, everyone kind of ran away as a result of this. Subsequently, the integrity commissioner 
uh, found that, in fact, the, that uh, my motion not only did not violate the MOU, but that the mayor had erroneously made this point, which, of course, had colored the whole debate. Yeah. Okay, this would be an Indigenous-led Olympic Games bid, as we heard here, local First Nations behind, on board with this idea. They would lead the bid, which I think is a, a real unique and interesting idea. Let's have a listen to Wayne Sparrow here, Councillor Chief of the Musqueam First Nation here, on, on this idea of a plebiscite on an Olympic bid, and he's opposed to a plebiscite. Let's listen to what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. Quite taken back by it, and we're a little bit upset that this... Uh is anyone entertained at this stage right now? A little bit upsetting. Uh, it, it's not consistent with the MOU that we signed with the city of Vancouver. Um, so if, if those comments came earlier about wanting to go through this process, would have been, uh, I think, would have been fair to the nations to identify that at the very beginning. Okay, Musqueam Chief for, uh, Wayne Sparrow speaking there, and you heard him repeat the concerns that have been raised that you referenced there from the mayor, that this was this idea somehow goes against the memorandum of understanding the MOU the city has with the First Nations, but that's, you're saying that's not correct? No, it's categorically incorrect. It's just not true, and that has yeah. been verified. Um, again, why are we afraid of, of reaching out to the people? It is ultimately uh, a question of, of who's going to bear the, the cost of this. Right. And I will point back to the report that city staff put forward, uh, which did not recommend moving forward. They cited the tight timeline uh, to evaluate and negotiate between now and the end of the year. The, that's, that uh, staff are spread too thin between the FIFA World Cup and Invictus Games. There's unclear uh, governance. The city has a large stake with little control over the process. The costs and financial risks are are significant. And we don't have a sense of the degree of public support since we're not asking the people. Yeah, speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick, she's a candidate for mayor in this fall's election. Like you outlined a lot of concerns there about an Olympic bid. How much would it cost? Is there any kind of estimated price tag on this yet? No, this is again one of the, the big concerns. The larger one is this is a $4 billion decision. And no one really has pinned down who's going to pay. We know that the federal government and the provincial government have said that they're not stepping up and they're not going to indemnify it. So it puts the city at significant risk. Right. It's been characterized as a, for the by the supporters of it that it would be a great idea for Vancouver for a number of reasons, one of which is that we already have a lot of the infrastructure in place from the last time we hosted the Winter Olympic Games, so you would not have to build some of the infrastructure that would have been required the first go-around. It's already in place. That it would be a great shot in the arm for tourism, especially coming out of the pandemic. What do you think of those arguments? Well, I think I'd like to see the records of the 2010 Olympics. As you may know, the books, uh, the records, are embargoed in the city archives until 2025. So in in actuality, we don't even know how we made out in the 2010 Olympics. And if I was in any kind of, uh, of decision-making role, I would want to have that information um, to inform my decision. But let's talk about the other things, the displacement of housing of insecure residents and the disruption to businesses that lead up to the Games. Um, and while it may be um, good for tourism, 
that's only one of the industries in this city, and we have to be looking at the pros and cons more completely. So uh, my observation is that we have moved ahead against the recommendations of staff based on uh, their analysis, uh, which I find, again, very concerning. Okay, so your idea for a plebiscite this fall on an Olympic bid voted down at council, is that the, is that the end of it? Or is there, any, is there anywhere else you can try and move this forward? Or, or is, this going, is this game's bid likely to go forward without any kind of plebiscite? If, well, right now it's going ahead without a plebiscite. But yeah, we have an yeah. election on October 15th. And this is the, the opportunity for Vancouver voters to have their say, I guess, in uh, making changes at City Hall with the mayor and council. Um, that are making, in my view, decisions that are are not based on uh, a proper well, process. If if you so, became if you became mayor and you had the support on council, would you would you go forward with some sort of a plebiscite if you could? A hundred percent. Okay. The people deserve a voice and a say in this moving forward. All right. Thanks for coming on today, Councillor. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk real estate and the affordability crisis right now. The market is definitely cooling off here with interest rates on the rise, but prices still sky high uh, beyond the reach of many. Let's check out Remax Canada's brand new housing affordability report. This just came out yesterday. Where is the the cheapest housing, the most affordable? Let's take a look at that first. Brandon, Manitoba is currently the most affordable market in the country, according to this report. Average sale price there for a home, $310,000. Brandon, Manitoba, rounding out the top five for most affordable. Regina, St. John's, Moncton, and Red Deer, Alberta, the most affordable markets. Where is the least affordable market, the most expensive in the country. Well, of course you know where it is. It's right here, Greater Vancouver, the most expensive market in the country. It's interesting, this report outlines that more and more Canadians faced with this now are willing to make some sacrifices here in order to afford a home. More people are willing to do a a co-owning model. Maybe you go in on a place with friends or family to buy a home. How about an in, an income an income uh, suite suite out part of the home to get some additional income? Yeah, more and more people willing to do that. More people willing to just move out, move away from town, in order to afford a home, move to a town where it's more affordable. I got Dane Itell standing by to discuss this first. Have a listen to this report now on housing affordability. This is from Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. If we, yeah. Record low interest rates allowed a huge swath of the population to jump into the real estate market during the pandemic. Variable rate mortgages meant lower payments and flexibility. Now, with rates two full percentage points higher than they were in March, mortgage payments squeezing homeowners' bottom lines. I think uh, something like 95% of our clientele in the last two years did a variable mortgage. The average mortgage in Canada just more than $700,000. The 1% increase to a typical mortgage rate increases payments by $325 a month. 
Yeah, those rising interest rates are making it even tougher out there. Let's check in with Dane Itell now, founder of Itell Insights. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Dane, thanks for coming on. Mike, always a pleasure to be with you, sir. Yeah, for sure. And I, this interesting new report out from Remax, it's, it's interesting to look at the affordabilities, uh, as it exists across the country. No surprise. I'm sure it's no surprise to you. Metro Vancouver, the most exposed, expensive in the country. Uh, that's, that doesn't come as a shock for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when we think about this now, like, are you hearing this from people that people are willing now? to make some sacrifices. Maybe they're willing to do co-ownership. They're willing to put a, a secondary suite in a home if it helps them afford a place. Or they're even willing to move out of town to find a more affordable place to live. Are you hearing that from your, your customers and your and your and the people who follow you? No, absolutely. And the analytics definitely back that up. So um, just kind of as a, as a, a you know, case in point, Mission uh, during July of 2020, just as kind of COVID was starting to you know unfold itself and the real estate market really started to take off. Average sale price in July of 2020 for Mission um, was eight hundred and four thousand dollars. To the max peak, it was actually an increase of six hundred eight thousand dollars. So seventy six percent increase um, to March or February, sorry, of 2022. So it was just an absolute torrid pace higher, and because of you know the ability to be able to work from home we did experience a lot of people moving to the secondary or the tertiary markets. The Fraser Valley um, actually outperformed the greater Vancouver market during that period of time and increased the value on an average sale price of 321,000 or plus 17% from again, July of 2020 to um, the peak market, which was again in February of um, 2022 for Fraser Valley. Well, the greater Vancouver market actually only uh, rose up 15%. And what we noticed in the greater Vancouver market Again, it was the typical lagging areas that actually led this market higher. So, for example, we have um, Pitt Meadows, which <laughs> was at one million and thirteen thousand again in July of 2020, all the way up to one point nine six during uh, the, the peak. Again, a ninety three percent increase. What we're noticing now, since March, since the interest rates started to move, is the areas that were the highest flyers have fallen off the most. So, since the the, the peak. Pitt Meadow has come off 40%, and uh, Mission has actually come off 23%. So we're starting to see those markets revert back to maybe a bit more of a, a normalized market. Okay, that's very interesting to see. Those. Boy, those are some big swings. Do you anticipate Absolutely. that uh, demand could increase in those those cities? You know what? I, I, I don't. Um, I think what we really experienced was uh, you know that really critical need for more space. Everybody was working from home, with, um, teaching from home. So there was that kind of crucial need that was ultimately um, found, and that's when the market moved out. What we're expecting to go forward is the typical market leaders to regain their strength. So, for example, West Vancouver is still below the 2017 market high, where all the secondary markets are are, are well above that, you know, between 30 and and upwards of 70, 80% higher. Taking a look at this Remax Canada report just came out yesterday, Dane, and it says that Despite the challenges in this market, Canadians still want to own real estate. I mean, it still remains the dream to get into home ownership, and they're willing to make some sacrifices to get there. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, people who are willing to maybe do co-ownership, or or they're willing to rent out part of the home to make uh, generate some additional income, or or maybe they're willing to buy look at a, a townhouse or something maybe they didn't want before or a condo sort of scaling down their expectations. Your thoughts? 
100%. So initially, um, you know, there was a lot of investment from parents, to be honest with you, when we were experiencing this kind of rapid growth streak. More recently, the parents are still helping, but even that isn't enough, especially with the interest rate rise. So for sure, the properties that do have income suites or income potential um, are, are very much in demand. And again, because of the interest rate increase, we're starting to see people set their sights a little bit lower. So if they were looking to get into the entry-level detached market, now it's kind of... Um, down to the townhouse market, similar for the townhouse market. They're looking for a larger two-bedroom condo. And just on that, we'll talk about Surrey real quick, which actually had, a, 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 again, a, a nice increase. There was $854,000 gain between July of 2020 and the max peak, so a 78% increase there. Since then, we've seen a 21% fall-off, so $413,000 decrease from the max price. And oddly enough, the interest rate payments are still $576 higher than what they were in February, even with the price decrease of $413,000. So the interest rate is a huge factor in the affordability here, obviously. Speaking of Dane Itell, Itell Insights about the housing market right now, the new REMAX housing affordability report just out. This report also indicates, Dane, that more and more Canadians willing to move if it means they are going to move to a more affordable market. I mean, I've heard that from people. I've heard from people who tell me that, you know, Vancouver, I just can't do it. I, I, You know, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave. I love the city, but I'm going to move somewhere where I can afford to buy a home. I mean, that is a big sacrifice if you're going to move out of the town where you want to live in order to buy a property. But is that really happening? Like, are you hearing that from, from your people? It absolutely was probably more prevalent um, earlier on when, again, the work from home was more feasible. Now, of course, the jobs are wanting you to start to come back to work. And that's probably what we're noticing here in the Fraser Valley market. So maybe some people that entered during that period of time, they're looking to potentially get out and maybe make some money as well. But the uh, inventory is actually up 206% from the all-time low that we uh, experienced during December of 2021. And just for kind of comparison's sake, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver numbers are only up 111%. So almost a doubling um, of the Fraser Valley market inventory coming to, uh, coming to for sale. Yeah. Hey, Dan, let me ask you really quick about the, the breaking news here today. Finance Minister Selena Robinson announcing that long-anticipated cooling-off period. So this would be a three-day sort of window, wriggle room, where a buyer would be allowed to back away from a deal and pay a 0.25% penalty. So let's say you're looking at a million-dollar home. Within that three-day period, you decide not to go through with the deal, you'd have to pay a penalty of 2500 bucks. The government is saying this is going to give people time to get a home inspection, secure financing. What do you think of that? It's kind of Johnny-come-lately, in my opinion. Uh, again, I'm more of a free market guy. The market does correct on its own volition, as what we're experiencing now. Properties right now, unless they're very you know, reasonably priced with a lot of demand in a good area, they're not receiving subject-free offers anymore. Um, and this has nothing to do with the cooling-off period. It really just has to do with market factors, supply-demand. The supply has actually overtaken the demand for the first time since the last three or two and a half years across the board. So that's something that will naturally cool off the market. Um, having a three-day window is kind of um, unnecessary at this point in time, again, because there are many, many, uh, the majority of the offers have subject uh, to financing, subject to inspection, subject to review of documents if it's, if it's a strata. So, you know, it's, it's kind of unnecessary at this point in time. However, of course, during the next heated market, because everything does work in cycles, 
it will be seen as a thing. But for me, what was more uh, crucial or impactful was actually the five-day hold on actually accepting offers. People that are interested can react within that five-day window, get their inspection organized and all of those type of things. So that, that is um, important so that there's buyer confidence and maybe a bit of transparency in the, in the ultimate uh, multiple offers that do come in. So I think it is a good thing, um, but maybe not in the whole bag that they've offered it. Dane, thanks for coming on today. Always my pleasure. All right, let's talk about the real estate measures unveiled by the B.C. government this week. The government expanding the speculation tax in British Columbia. Also, that new cooling off period for home buyers, three days. That would be the wriggle room for property purchasers to back out of an agreement to buy a place pending a inspection of the property. Three days you can back away from the deal. You would have to pay a penalty, though, for backing out. Got Liberal MLA Peter Millibar standing by. Have a listen to Attorney General. He's not Attorney General anymore now that he's running for NDP leader. David Eby here uh, talking about why the government wanted to bring in that cooling off period, let people wriggle out of a real estate deal. Have a listen. The idea is that uh, it gives them the opportunity to uh, do a proper inspection. I mean, there was a news story about a family that discovered a colony of bats living in the in the home after they purchased it. So, you know, it, it just gives uh, purchasers the chance to uh, do those inspections and due diligence. Okay, imagine you buy a home and you find a colony of bats in the attic. Yeah, this EB there is saying this would give you a chance to back away from the deal. Let's check in with Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops, North Thompson. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with the cooling off period, three days to back away from the deal. Do you guys support this? Well, I think what we have to look at is this has been an 18-month exercise in futility from the government yet again on housing. Uh, David Eby can talk about it gives you the ability to back out of a deal with a home inspection. First off, who's going to get a home inspector to show up within three days and issue a report? Secondly, uh, this has been so badly bungled, there's no provisions in it that makes it mandatory that the seller has to provide access to the buyer in that three-day period. Uh, So they've left massive loopholes. They've totally ignored their own uh, BCFSA expert uh, report advice that they were given. And that was the whole reason uh, the finance minister has been saying all along we had to wait to see what the regulations were going to be after they already passed the legislation. What was the advice that they received? Well, uh, early on, uh, the Real Estate Association came out with a 57-page uh, white paper that uh, suggested a five-day uh, pre-offer period. Uh, the minister dismissed that out of hand when that report came out. Uh, so did Dan Coulter from Chilliwack. In fact, they were admonishing us in their debates in, in the legislature around that idea. Yet uh, the BCFSA, which is uh, did the report for the minister, the minister oversees that organization, uh, suggested and recommended uh, the five-day uh, pre-offer period, and they made it very clear you can't, you should not just be cherry-picking one thing over another in their report. That you need to do a, a, a series of of steps to make anything effective. What we have here is is simply a watered-down cherry-picking of, of an idea that's that's really not going to deliver any actual tangible result for anyone. But it will make it the minister, I guess, feel better, looking like they've taken action on housing. And as we've seen okay. over the last five years. Their housing action's been a a dismal failure. Okay, the BC Real Estate Association, also critical of this three-day cooling-off period to back out of a purchase deal. 
Let's have a listen to the CEO of the BC Real Estate Association, or Trevor Coote, speaking to Simi this morning, and we'll get your thoughts. What was surprising was how little there was. Uh, what, what the minister opted to choose uh, to populate that, that legislation uh, after receiving from their own independent regulator, the BC Financial Services Authority, um, 17 recommendations uh, earlier this year, uh, which was actually populated a lot by our 34 recommendations that we put out prior to that. The minister had every opportunity to provide a much more substantive consumer protection policy uh, and opted for a very narrow scope that actually is going to be completely ineffective in the current market conditions. Yeah. But wouldn't he say that? I mean, he's a real estate guy, right? So, I mean, doesn't it make make sense that, you know, people who are trying to sell real estate would not be happy with a law that says a buyer can back out of the deal? Well, and I I would get that if if they were the only people saying that uh, other recommendations should have been enacted. But the reality is... Uh, the BC Financial Service Agency, which is oversaw by the Minister of Finance, was directed by the Minister of Finance uh, as experts to come forward with recommendations on, on a program of implementation of, of different regulations. Uh, the Minister has chosen to ignore those exact same recommendations. So the fact the Real Estate Association maybe had come to the same conclusion that the experts under the minister's purview had come to, and now the minister is ignoring that, it should be no surprise the Real Estate Association uh, is less than thrilled. The reality is, uh, this doesn't even take effect till January. We've waited 18 months. There is massive holes in this uh, that can be driven through, things like not having guaranteed access to the house over that three-day period uh, to try to get any checks uh, in place. Um, and so why the rush to rush out one little piece and then have the minister say oh. on the day of the announcement while well, we're still looking at other options? It's, it's, it's ridiculous in the extreme, and it, I think it just speaks to how her and David Eby have handled the housing file over the last five years. Okay, let's talk about the other measure unveiled by the government this week. That is an expansion of the speculation and vacancy tax. So this would apply to... A home, an unoccupied home that's sitting there empty. Uh, you'd have to file an annual disclosure on that. If the house is not occupied, if you're not living in it or not renting it out, you would have to pay this penalty tax. The government expanding this tax now to other communities, Ladysmith, Lake Cowich, and North Duncan, Duncan on the island, Lions Bay and Squamish, very notably uh, Whistler not on that list, and the... Gulf Islands also still excluded from this tax. Here is Finance Minister Selena Robinson explaining it. If you choose to leave housing empty in one of these communities, while so many are struggling to find a place to live, then you will pay the tax. This tax is to ensure that housing is used to shelter people, not as speculative investment. Uh, Peter Millibar, your thoughts? Well, again, uh, you know, it, it seemed to be the minister uh, playing on the edges of the existing boundaries to try to get a, a chance and an opportunity to flat out misrepresent what our leader, Kevin Falcon, has said about the speculation tax and, and housing taxes and charges and fees in general. Um, you know, they, they added a very little area. They left notably Whistler out. They left the Gulf yeah. Islands out. Miraculously, areas that their own cabinet ministers have vacation properties in and investment properties in those two areas. Um, so it does make you scratch your head when those areas are facing massive uh, working uh, people uh, shortage for housing in Whistler's case in terms of uh, the Gulf Islands, massive vacancy 
problems in terms of overall housing, yet they get left out of an expansion with no clear answer from the minister on these decisions uh, and how they're in one area over another. Hang on a sec now. So you're saying that some NDP cabinet ministers own, they own what, unoccupied properties in, in Whistler? And in the and the Gulf Islands, that they would have to pay this tax if it was included, and you're saying that's why they didn't include it. Yeah, it's it's right there in the disclosure statements. Uh, Minister Rankin, Minister Heyman, uh, Janet Routledge, uh, their former party president, uh, Craig Keating, they all have uh, um, vacation properties in Gulf Islands or, or in Whistler, and and uh, it's troubling when you start seeing those types of things. It, it makes you question the sincerity of what the government is actually doing. Um, again, when they try to mischaracterize basically the whole time after they make the announcement, uh, statements made by our leader, which are, are patently false. So, Okay, well, um, speak, speaking of which, let's have a listen to Selena Robinson again here. Here she is speaking, uh, going after you guys on this uh, speculation tax. And she mentions Kevin Falcon here. Let's have a listen to what she says and I'll get your thoughts. Kevin Falcon and the BC Liberals, or whatever they're going to call themselves, they said that they would cancel the speculation and vacancy tax, which would certainly help those at the top, those who have two, three, or four homes. What it means is that it would take real homes away from people. Okay, is that correct that the Liberal government would cancel this tax? No, it's not correct. And in fact, uh, the minister uh, needs to actually probably retract the how. Uh, misleading her statements have been as it's uh, essentially a flat-out lie. Kevin's been very clear uh, that his focus is going to be, and our focus will be on the on the massive amount of taxes and charges uh, across the board that are being levied on housing in this province under the NDP, um, local and provincial. They're, they're, they account for about 25% of the cost on new housing. Um, it's a huge drag on trying to get people into affordable housing. Uh, the fact that the NDP is afraid to look at their tax structure and, and what that is doing uh, overall uh, and trying to focus in on something that Kevin's been very clear that he would not cancel uh, is, is shocking uh, for a minister to continue with that narrative. Okay, so a Liberal government would leave that speculation and vacancy tax in place and it would continue. Is that correct? Yeah, and Kevin's been very clear on that, and he's been also very clear, though, that we're going to look at the overall tax and, and fee and, and cost structure levied by governments on housing in this province in terms of how it's impacting affordability, especially trying to get new supply uh, onto the market, which will help people access uh, affordable housing. All right, talking about the new real estate rules rolled out by the government this week, that cooling off period, three days to wriggle out of a real estate purchase, also that vacancy and speculation tax expanded not to whistler or the gulf islands though liberal mla peter millibar my guest lots of calls rick and delta hi rick what do you think yeah i'm a realtor i just thought you know you made a comment well what do you expect that the real estate association would be against this i just want to remind you you know we represent both buyers and sellers and if uh, you know our buyers choose to in the future walk away from these things it kind of behooves us to go along and agree with them because, uh, if, as, you know, as long as they have a reasonable reason and, you know, we want to keep them happy just like listing agents want to keep their sellers happy. Okay, so do you therefore think that the cooling off period is a good idea? Give people an opportunity to get out of the deal? Not really, because oh. we're now in a market, you know, it was maybe appropriate two years ago or the last few years 
But I mean, right now, with market conditions the way they are, people rate subjects with five, seven, eight-day subject removal dates for inspections, financing, title searches, and various other things. So, you know, that that option is is definitely there. And, uh, you know, the market is correcting itself. And... uh, we're back to doing business the way we have traditionally, which is, you know, subject to financing, subject to inspection. Okay, Rick, thank you very much for the call. Peter Millibar, I mean, bottom line on this is that the biggest challenge, I think, in real estate is affordability. People can't afford to buy a place, and this is not going to do anything to improve that, correct? No, no, and we're five years into the 10-year housing plan of David E.B. and and Selena Robinson, they've only delivered 6% of, of that. We have the highest housing prices ever. We have rents that are uh, $3,000 plus a year more than they were when this plan started. So they're once again a hand-fisted attempt to try to attempt to look like they're doing something, but it's actually right. too late. They've missed the, they missed the window where anything like this might have been effective in the first place. Mike in White Rock. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Have we noticed yet that every time the government talks, it's the government is always our best friend and then the business people are all bad. Have we also noticed the pattern that every time government tries to get involved, things have gotten progressively worse? Like, when are we going to wake up and realize that government is not our savior? It's just really sad and frustrating to see. Yes, we have a bit of a challenge, but guess what? In an economy that goes up and down, we are going to have ebbs and flows. We remember the 80s where interest rates were high and it was terrible, and then the past couple of years where things are fantastic. That's what happens in an economy. Even guys like yeah. Warren Buffett will tell you, it goes up and down over time. There's no such thing as a smooth ride to the top indefinitely. Okay, Mike, thank you for that call. Lots of calls here. I'll try to get to more of them here. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering, Mr. Millibar, I happen to know out of all the properties that went up because of the speculation tax, how many were sold and how many went actually into the rental pool? And if anyone can actually afford to rent these places that went into the rental pool? Peter? Well, that that's a big question, Mark. I, I, I have a bit of a, a cynical eye when I see the, the minister trying to talk about 20,000 units uh, we don't really have clear clarification if those weren't already being rented, but maybe not quite at the the, the level of per months per year that uh, need to to avoid paying the tax. Um, and how many decided to start renting strictly because rents have skyrocketed so much under the NDP? Uh, they realized why, why wouldn't I rent something if I can be getting three or four thousand dollars a month rent off of it um, and avoid paying a tax anyways because the rents have gone up uh, so much over the last oh, yeah. five years. Rents are huge. The highest we've had some of the biggest rent hikes in the country right here in BC. Nick and Surrey. Hi, Nick. What do you think? Got a, thirty seconds here. Okay. Hey, Mike. Uh, I think uh, you know it's a little bit late, uh, but you know I think it'll probably offer some um, you know a benefit to you know first-time buyers, buyers that are not that sophisticated to at least have an opt-out. Uh, it'll cost them you know three, three grand, four grand, whatever on an average uh, home these days to opt-out. Uh, but it's a little late. I think the market's already cooling uh, everything down and allowing people to have a bit of time to do some due diligence before they do the purchase. But I just want to add one last thing, and and that is, I think when realtors were pricing things and they still do pricing them, you know, purposely low to generate more interest, more offers, I think that was a bad practice. I think that, you know, it should should not be done by a professional.
Let's talk. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Hells Angels now in British Columbia and across Canada. The Hells Angels back in the headlines. Lots of news stories on the Angels this past week. Have you ever seen a member of the Hells Angels wearing like that full patch jacket? I remember once I was in a I was in a pub many years ago in Victoria, and a couple of a couple of Hells Angels came in. Yeah, you know, the whole place just watching these guys. They came in with their jackets. You're kind of hanging out. There was a cop there, too, kind of watching them and talking to them. And the, everybody in this whole bar, all eyes were on these guys. And they come in in their, in their full patch Hells Angels jackets. Uh, you see these guys, and it's kind of like almost like a fascination. You're like, wow, look at these guys walking around with these jackets on. Amazing, man. These guys got, they don't really care. They just, they advertise they're in the Angels. Pretty wild. That was the case yesterday in Toronto, or hundreds of members of the Hell's Angels. They rolled into into Toronto for a memorial drive for a former leader of the Hell's Angels who had passed away. I got Stephen Matelski standing by. He's one of Canada's top organized crime experts. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Catherine McDonald. Around 11.30 this morning, Harley-Davidson's began rolling onto Carlaw Avenue off Lakeshore Boulevard. This was the culmination of a memorial ride for former Toronto chapter president Donnie Peterson, who died last December at the age of 74. Hells Angels members and their associates from across Canada began the day in Newmarket, where breakfast was held at Leslie Street and Davis Drive under the watchful eye of York Regional Police. Roughly 500 bikers then made their way south down Highway 404 from Newmarket to Toronto. At one point, a biker crashed into the ditch. His injuries are still unknown. The procession resumed south to the Dawn Valley Parkway all the way to Lakeshore Boulevard where the bikers turned east before coming up Carlaw wearing their patches and full colors. While the bikers congregated for more than three hours, police officers from the RCMP, Toronto Police and from Quebec gathered intelligence on the criminal organization taking pictures and videos of those taking part. Donnie was a legend in the MC motorcycle club world. So he was a good friend of ours and we just wanted to honor him the way we did. So here we are. It was Donnie's last ride as the flyer says. I live in the hood and it's part of my hood and I think the fascination for people is because they're so mysterious and illegal and people are kind of drawn to this and that's why I came. Yeah, there were a lot of people showed up just to get a look at these guys as they rolled through the streets of Toronto. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stephen Matelski. He is one of Canada's top experts on organized crime. He's a professor of criminology at Mohawk College. His book is Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Underworldstories.com is his website. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stephen, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Okay, Stephen, it's pretty wild to see hundreds of members of the Hells Angels rolling through the streets of Toronto. You got the you got the, the cops watching every move, videotaping them, taking photographs. Kind of reminded me of that scene in the in the Godfather at the wedding when the feds are taking the photos of all the license plates out in the parking lot. These guys, uh, what did you think of that? What did you make of that? Is that unusual to see that many angels all together in a big rally like that? It's not, but these days, Mike, it is becoming a rarity. You know, aside from what we saw yesterday with the memorial run, you typically are not going to see, because you had mentioned already that the high visibility, like you don't see the Italian mafia going around in leather jackets that say mob on the back. They try to be the opposite, completely low-key. 
you know, you look at the outlaw motorcycle gang world, everything from the tattoos to the patches on their jacket suggests their not only position in the club, but, you know, even criminal history and lifestyle. Um, so you, you rarely see these things, aside from like funerals, the memorial yesterday for Peterson, uh, typically as well, Mike, I know here in Ontario, it's Friday the 13th. Um, whenever that day falls on a Friday, the 13th, you'll typically see bikers with their full patch, their colors, heading down to Port Dover. Um, aside from that, funerals are the only time, because, you know, it's this evolution of the outlaw motorcycle gang. Well, long gone, you still see some of them, but that whole stereotypical imagery, the long hair, the beard, a lot of these guys now are driving SUVs, they're clean cut, they're wearing suits, they're covering their tattoos because of that visibility factor, Mike. Yeah, and as you mentioned, as we heard in that report, this was a billed as a memorial ride by the Hells Angels to honour uh, one of the former leaders there in Toronto, Donnie Peterson, who passed away. Who was that guy? He's uh, a long, long-standing member of the Hells Angels. And I have to just add, there's been some really high-profile, significant deaths in, in, the, in the Hells Angels world in the last few weeks. You know, we also saw Maurice Montboucher uh, die yeah. in prison in Quebec. And a few weeks back, Mike, in the United States, uh, a man by the name of Cindy Barger, who was actually the original founding member of the Hells Angels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. He passed away just a few weeks ago in the United States. Wow. Wow. When you, are, is, are the Hells Angels designated as like a, a criminal organization in Canada? Like, how are they, how are they characterized or, or categorized by the government or law enforcement in Canada? There's the, the Criminal Intelligence Service Canada. They go by the acronym uh, CISO or CISC. They have, in the past, uh, officially designated the Hells Angels as uh, not only not a motorcycle gang, um, but a criminal org. It's a different story in the courts, Mike, with the anti-gang legislation and basically the you know, criminal organization legislation. Um, it hasn't been fully, fully tested. I know about 20 years ago in the province of Ontario, uh, they tried to charge two members of the Hells Angels out here with uh, Bill C-24, which is the anti-gang legislation. It's not like a highway traffic offense where you can just lay the charge on the spot. This type of criminal legislation involves major uh, time management, uh, resources, because you have to put together a very lengthy prosecutable case to prove in a court of law in Canada that a particular group is a criminal organization. Yeah. Speaking of Stephen Matelski, organized crime expert, someone told me once, tell me if this is accurate, Stephen, that the way the Hells Angels are structured, it's kind of like a, a pyramid. And once you're to the top, you're like a full patch biker. So you're walking around with your, your colors on and your full patch on that at that point it's difficult for the cops to put their fingers on them because they're so well insulated. Like by the time you get to the top of the pyramid, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people who might be doing any kind of dirty work or breaking the law are more or less the, the underlings at the bottom of the pyramid. And once you get up to the top, you know, you're insulated from that and it's difficult to charge them. Is that correct? Is that how it works? It's very correct, Mike. Um, you know, we saw a recent case out in B.C. just this week with a puppet club of the Hells Angels that were charged with uh, numerous drug offenses and other criminal charges. 
you know, once you reach that top echelon, and it, first of all, outlaw motorcycle gangs started uh, a post World War II when there really was veterans just wanting to get together for the camaraderie. They're very much structured like a paramilitary organization um, with that pyramid structure, as you alluded to. And the full patch membership is at the top. Uh, you have a top bottom rocker on the back of the leather cut with the with the insignia of the club in the middle. That's indicative of somebody that is a full patch member. It takes years to get to that point. Uh, you know, folks as a, a hang around, a prospect, a striker, a probate. Uh, very, uh, they do that for a reason. They want to insulate law enforcement from trying to penetrate that group in an undercover capacity yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, with these puppet clubs, Mike, I, I, I liken it to an NHL club. These puppet clubs are like the farm team, and they farm out a lot of that criminality to these wannabe members in these puppet clubs who are aspiring to be part of the big club one day. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that was in the news this week in British Columbia where charges were laid against members of a, a Hells Angels club that had been described as like a, a puppet club. So that some of the, the people who were charged here were members of a group called the Throttle Lockers in, in, in Kamloops. Like, are there a lot of these kind of clubs that are not, they're not called Hell's Angels, they're not riding around or walking around in full Hell's Angels regalia or full patch jackets, but they're a member of some other club with a different name that are somehow controlled by the Angels? Yes, Mike, for sure. This is the whole sole reason like a group like the Hell's Angels creates these puppet clubs, is they're kind of the street level. And in the underworld, other criminal groups will know these puppet clubs are affiliated with the bigger group, such as the HAs. And it kind of gives them a little bit of, uh, you know, protection on the streets when other groups, criminal groups, know that, you know, these puppet clubs are affiliated with, with the big gangs. And they typically are, as I mentioned. They are the ones that, for the most part, are, you know, getting those, the, the dirty work, you know, the drugs, uh, assaults, gambling debts, uh, drug debts, you know, they're doing the dirty work for the club. And it's no different than other criminal groups like the mafia. You mentioned the reference to the Godfather, you know, yeah. the, the big bosses at the top, you know, very structured as well, like a lot of motorcycle gangs. They're hiring, uh, you know, guys from even different gangs nowadays to create that extra uh, multi-layered uh, barrier from, you know, any connectivity to who's really you know, calling the shots and, and issuing murder contracts on the street. Typically, you're going to see the puppet clubs will be the ones doing the dirty work for for the actual full group membership status of, of a group like the HAs. All right, welcome back. Let's keep talking about the Hells Angels now in Canada with my guest, Stephen Matelski, underworldstories.com is his website and you heard steven reference before the break the death on sunday of maurice mom boucher a notorious longtime hell's angels leader probably arguably the most notorious and well-known gangster criminal in the history of quebec where he was based he had been in jail serving consecutive life sentences. He died on Sunday in the palliative care ward of a correctional health care facility from cancer. Let's have a listen to this report here on that now from Global News reporter Mike Armstrong. 
Quebec's biker war raged for eight years. More than 160 people were killed, and it made the man at the middle of it infamous. Boucher led the Nomads, an elite chapter of the Hells Angels. He got the nickname Mom because he was apparently like an overbearing mother. For a time, he seemed untouchable. He wasn't. But when Boucher was arrested in 1997, he was already a household name. He wouldn't be behind bars for long, and his reputation was still growing. Boucher was put on trial for ordering the murder of two prison guards. The goal was to destabilize the justice system. Maurice mom Boucher's died in prison on Sunday. My guest is Stephen Matelski, Mohawk College. Stephen, what can you say about this guy? He's a notorious figure in the Hells Angels. Yeah, Maurice Mamboucher is probably one of the most infamous criminals in Canadian history. I kind of liken him as well to, he's kind of like the John Gotti of the biker world. When you look at these guys, you know, the public fascination, even, you know, with the, all the violence and the murder aside, they were fascinated by him because in the media he appeared affable. He, he was personal. Yeah. The camera the camera liked him, kind of just like John Gotti. He played to the camera. He played to the media. You know, but behind the scenes with, with people like Gotti and, and Boucher, they are hardcore criminals who thrive on fear, intimidation, and power to control people in society, specifically the underworld. So, you know, when you reference the, the two prison guards, these were just two innocent, hardworking correctional officers that were randomly targeted. You know, that's how sort of narcissistic um, and sort of addicted to power and control that Boucher became, that he thought he could actually, you know, intimidate the Canadian government by committing these homicides. What happened to the Hells Angels in Quebec after he was locked up? Well, you know, he was still, uh, right up until 2018, he actually pled guilty to orchestrating the murder of Reynald Desjardins, who at one time was a very high-ranking, powerful member in the Italian mafia with the Rizzutos in Quebec. And just because a criminal goes to prison, you know, with with messengers, with couriers, with sometimes even corrupt correctional officials, um, you know, they're able to still control with the, the, their criminal territory and rackets from prison. And mom was actually using his daughter, um, you know, to control the, the drug market in, in parts of Quebec. And he actually sent a message through his daughter to have somebody kill Reynald Desjardins, and that was just four years ago, Mike. So even with him being in prison all those years, uh, he was still feared. He was still controlling a lot of aspects of the outlaw motorcycle gang world from his prison cell. Just got one minute left here, Stephen. This is a guy who was extremely powerful and cocky at the top of his reign at the Hells Angels in Quebec. As you mentioned, he was he was <laughs> he was like a notorious figure. Loved he loved playing for the camera. You know, it ended up badly for him. He ended up in jail, consecutive murder sentences, and then he dies in jail. You know, it, what does that say as a kind of a, a moral for this sort of lifestyle and organized crime? A lot of these guys end up dying in jail, right? 30 seconds here. They really do. You know, unless you put on a, a, a government sweater and cooperate, you're either in jail or you're going to take a bullet. And that's the life in, in organized crime, whether you're a mobster or whether you're a biker. And, you know, like Gotti, the downfall for both of them was they created too much heat and attention, you know, just yeah. with the biker wars and, and, and the homicides. So, you know, that is the 
the negative thing that actually shot both Gotti and Boucher in the foot was the fact they were two out there in the media. Stephen, thanks for your time today. It's always great to have you on here. Thanks so much, Mike.